Amen. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles, and we are going to be in Genesis 19 this morning. Genesis 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in the seat in front of you that you're welcome to use. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to just take that one with you as our gift. Genesis 19. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but we are going to read it. Um, And because it's longer, I want you to pay particular attention because we're not going to have as much of the ability to go back and reread as we go. So we're going to kind of read through it as an overview here at the beginning and then kind of walk through it together. But I, I want us to hear this story in its entirety before we start unpacking it. So Genesis chapter 19. Hear the word of the Lord. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, Do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, 
this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you were to tell your friends later today, they asked you what about your morning and said, hey, what would you guys talk about at church? And you told them that the message you heard at church was a fire and brimstone message. What do you think would go through their minds? First of all, are any of them going to say, hey, can I come with you next week? <laughs> or maybe, forget about your friends, I wonder what's going through your own mind. When you saw in your bulletin that title, and it included the words fire and brimstone, what images spring to mind when we hear those words? Angry preachers yelling at people on street corners? A message that tries to terrify people into changing? Whatever it is, my strong guess is that many of us don't have positive connotations with a message about fire and brimstone. And yet, our passage this morning is the original fire and brimstone passage. This is the OG fire and brimstone passage. 
We see it in verse 24 when God destroys Sodom. Our version says with fire and sulfur. Other translations say with fire and brimstone. And I think as we get started that the message of this chapter is actually so needed and so good for us because passages like Genesis 19 show us the awful consequences of sin. And I want to give you, in case you're thinking, I don't know if I want to hear a message about fire and brimstone. Let me give you five bullet points why we need fire and brimstone messages like this. Number one, to be warned. To be warned of the reality of judgment. It's real. Second, to be reminded of our need for saving. Third, to be hopeful that God does provide a way of escape. Fourth, to be earnest in warning others. And fifth, to be joyful that in God's mercy, we've been rescued. Sometimes we need to see and remember the horror of judgment to truly savor what it is we've been saved from. So those are five quick reasons. To be warned, to be reminded, to be hopeful, to be earnest, and to be joyful. And that last one's really important because here in our original fire and brimstone sermon, we also see an incredible display of God's mercy and his grace. In the midst of this blazing judgment, we see the brightness of his saving love for us. So here's how we're going to walk through this text today. Go ahead and put up the slide here. Four sections. We've got a warning of judgment. Then we see the rescue of the righteous, the destruction of the wicked, and not the end of sin. Warning of judgment, rescue of righteous, destruction of the wicked, not the end of sin. Okay? Now, a word up front. We're going to start slowly in the first several verses and then pick up steam. So I say that if you're thinking, man, he's taking a long time here at the beginning. Does he remember how long he's, he has? Yes. There's just a, no, a lot of groundwork that we've got to lay up front that will allow us to move quicker as we go. So take heart. Now, last time, God told Abraham what he was about to do to Sodom, right? He showed up at his tent as they're walking away. God promised him that he was going to judge this city, and he promised that his judgment would be just, that he would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Meanwhile, as he's having that conversation with Abraham, remember the two angels that had been with God start making their way to Sodom to see firsthand they're going to go see, is it as bad as what we've heard? Because the judgment's going to be just. It's not going to be based on hearsay, but on evidence. So our story picks up then in verse 1 with those two angels arriving in Sodom. Now, as they arrive, the very first thing we notice is where they find Lot. Sitting in the gate of the city. Now, why does that matter? Well, Keep in mind, we've been tracking the movement of Lot over the last two chapters, right? Remember back in chapter 13 when he initially separated from Abram and he moved near Sodom. So he, he saw some good things over here. He neglected the promise and said, I'm going to go over here near this wicked city. Then in chapter 14, we found him not dwelling near Sodom. Now he was in Sodom. 
Well, now here we are in chapter 19. He's not just dwelling in Sodom. He's sitting in the gate. Now, the gate of the city was where the judges and the city leaders sat to make community decisions. So what we're seeing already is that Lot has continued to become more and more and more a part of the culture and community of Sodom. Now, I mean, he has a place of standing, of reputation, of prestige. He's in the gate. He's not just there. He's got some, he's got position. As we'll see in a minute, not just that, he owns a house there, right? Abraham's still living in a tent. We just saw last chapter. Not Lot. He's got a house in Sodom. His daughters are engaged to Sodomite men. Lot's really immersed himself in Sodom, and he's becoming increasingly interconnected with their culture. Okay, so we've got Lot in the gate, and when Lot sees the men or the angels, he greets them with warm hospitality, just like Abraham did, right? He offers them what would have been a customary offer to a traveler. There's no no hotels, no Motel 8, and so when you showed up at a place like this, good hospitality of the day would say, you offer a traveler a place to sleep for the night. But then, the men surprisingly turn down his offer and say, no, no, we'll just spend the night in the town square. Now, you got to understand that just like it would have been customary, and like the thing that you were meant to do is you offered a place to stay to travelers, it was equally customary and the thing to do that when offered, you accepted a place to stay. That's just good hospitality both ways. So already, the fact that they say no probably has Lot thinking, uh-oh, so, something's off here. But that's not all that's troubling Lot. He's even more troubled by the thought that these men would spend the night out in the open in the city square. Now, why would he be so bothered by that? Because he knows what his town is like. He knows how wicked the people are. And it troubles him. We see this later in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. We learn a little bit about Lot there. Listen to how 2 Peter describes Lot. First, it calls him righteous Lot. And it says he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Okay, so two things there stick out to us, right? First, Lot is described as righteous. And not just once, three times. He calls him righteous Lot, this righteous man tormenting his righteous soul. I mean, Peter's like, you gotta get it. He's righteous. And that's really important to remember because if all we had was Genesis 19... I'm not sure how many of us would have checked the box righteous under Lot's name, right? But we have it on the authority of God's word that he is. And so we need to read this with that lens. We know from chapter 15 that the only way to be righteous is by faith. So what we know is that Lot is a believer. That's the first thing that sticks out to us from 2 Peter The second thing that stood out there is that as a believer, Lot was really troubled by the evil he saw around him every day in Sodom. It says he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. His righteous soul was tormented over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
Day after day, Lot is bombarded by evil and sexual immorality everywhere he goes in the city and is eating him up inside. So here we have Lot. Put those together. We've got Lot, a righteous man, a man who has faith, one who hates the sin that he sees all around him. And yet, as we already pointed out, we've seen Lot move further and further and further into this very sinful culture. What we see is that if Lot had a Facebook page, his relationship status with Sodom would have been, it's complicated. He is both offended and attracted by Sodom. His soul is tortured by what he sees and hears every day, but he, he also loves the culture and the prosperity and the comfort that it provides. Here's how one writer said it. He said, Lot never totally identified with the world in which he lived. Yet at the same time, he was unwilling to leave it behind. He was the righteous man without the pilgrim spirit. He goes on, and this writer asks, how many of us are like that? We're Christians, yes. But we also want to have our part of the world. We feel that we can't possibly give it up completely. That would be simply too great a cost to bear. So, like Lot, we seek instead to do our best in a hopelessly compromised situation, trying to maintain dual citizenship in the world and in heaven. Close quote. I wonder if you can identify with that. You trust Jesus. You want to follow him sincerely. But if you're honest, you still want the things the world offers too. You're reluctant to let them go even after you've tasted and seen that he's good. As we're going to see a little bit later, sooner or later, a choice will have to be made. But that's not the only thing I want you to see here. What about... What about Lot's being tormented by the sin he saw every day? I wonder, do you feel that? Does your soul even feel distressed anymore by the sin around you? Or have you become so immersed, so integrated, so assimilated into the world and by what you see in shows and movies and on social media by what you hear at work, what you're surrounded by day after day, does it, does it even bother you anymore? Does sin still grieve you, or have you just accepted and embraced that's the way of the world? One of the things we can see about Lot here is he's made several horrible choices to compromise with sin, but at least he felt something about the sin around him. Let's go back to our story. Because we said Lot knows all too well what his city is like, he's not going to take no for an answer from these men. He's, he just knows, like, that is not an option. And so he knows the danger they'd be in, so it says he pressed them strongly. In, in, our, in our language today, we'd say he basically twists their arm, like, no, you guys are coming to my house. Until finally they're like, okay, okay. He takes them home, they get inside, he prepares them a feast, and they eat. Things are looking good. But before they turn in for the night, 
says the house is then surrounded by the men of the city and they demand that Lot send out the men so that they can know them. Here we get a picture of the corruption of Sodom. Last week we talked a little bit about how this city's sins included pride, included a harsh oppression of the poor, and a complete lack of compassion toward them by those who had more than enough. There was injustice in what one writer called social immorality. But here we see that Sodom was also filled with sexual immorality. In particular, the sin that is in focus here is homosexuality. It is the men of the city who are wanting to know the other men. These men are wanting to engage in acts that are contrary to how God made us and designed us. When the book of Jude talks about this scene, it makes it clear what's going on here. From Jude verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He's saying that's what we see here unnatural desire it is contrary to nature contrary to god's design and ways this is important because at times christians can be guilty of talking so much about homosexuality that it makes it seem like it's the only sin that's serious and we don't want to do that but We also don't want to go the other direction and not acknowledge when it's in the text that it is clearly portrayed here as wicked. We make no bones about that because scripture doesn't. Today we live in a world that's much like Sodom, much more so than we would care to admit. We're constantly surrounded by sexual immorality of all kinds, including homosexuality. On TV, in commercials, at work, Perhaps even at your family Thanksgiving dinner in a few weeks. And it's tempting to be worn down by it. It's always there. It just keeps coming to just start to slowly accept it. To let it creep in and reshape and reform our views. To compromise our views because it just makes it easier to be a part of the society around us. This passage though reminds us that we need to have our views of sexual morality shaped not by what's acceptable to our culture, but by God's word. We don't believe homosexuality is wrong because at one point it was traditional, or not because we're old-fashioned, or because at one time that's what most people thought. We believe homosexuality is wrong because God our King tells us it's wrong in his word. Even if everyone around us is supportive of sin, we must not join them. As Lot shows us here, our views of sexual sin is no small matter. For Lot, his decision not to agree and participate and go with the crowd was a matter of life and death. Now, having said that, that needs to be said and needs to be heard. We also need to be clear that while homosexuality is a sin, 
It's a sin that can be forgiven like any other sin. Those who sin through homosexuality are saved the same way that those who sin any other way are saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Listen to what Paul says to a church in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be fooled. Don't think that those will just slide on through. But notice also, homosexuality and greed are in the same list. So before you get too high and say, we got to pursue the, go against the homosexual agenda, are you going against the greed agenda equally? God's word does. But he goes on. He says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. He's talking to the church. He says, that was you. Well, what changed? How did they go from that to, why can he say were? You were those, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those men who practice homosexuality, he says, were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in the name of Jesus. So we must see, church, from God's word, that homosexuality is unquestionably a sin. And we must see that it's unquestionably one of only many ways that our sin shows itself. And Jesus stands ready to save sinners, whatever our sin may be. Okay, back to our text. I want you to notice now, not just the kind of corruption in the city, but how complete it is. Look at verse 4. It's emphatic. Both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. It wants us to see this corruption is pervasive and all-encompassing. Why is that important? We need to know there are no righteous people outside that house. So when judgment falls, we know it falls justly. No righteous are being swept away with the wicked. Now, in verse 7, here, here Lot gets a good moment, right? For a minute. He stands out as the one righteous man among the wicked. He at first shows godly courage to stand between the mob and his guests. He goes outside, he even shuts the door behind him, sealing off his own route of escape. This is, this is valiant. This is a good and godly thing to do, saying, no, you don't do this. He begs them not to act so wickedly. So far, so good, right? And then the things just go off the rails. Lot's good intentions go horribly wrong when he offers to send out his own daughters instead for the crowd to have their way with. Now, you might hear speculation about what this had to do with rules of hospitality, that it was such a, an admirable thing to protect your guests at any cost. There are no cultures of any point in the world that this would have been acceptable. This was a despicable, deplorable act of cowardice. Okay? We need to see that. If you hear a justification, dismiss it. This is not, we're not meant to see this and think, wow, that's, that's confusing, but admirable. It's not admirable. But Lot does it. He makes his offer to the crowd, and notice that when he does, notice how he addresses them. He calls them, my brothers. Or some translations say, my friends. 
again, he's signaling that he sees himself, he's like, I'm one of you. Listen, my people, guys, fellow sodomites. But they clearly don't see things the same way. Because in verse 9, they're offended that this outsider, this sojourner, would dare to judge them. No matter how much he might have integrated himself into their culture, the moment he spoke against their evil, they turned on him and moved to attack him instead. And let that be a word of warning as we seek to just involve ourselves, enmesh ourselves, move closer and closer into culture, thinking if I can just buddy up and make them on my side and be one of them, the minute you point out evil, the same thing will happen. But then what happens? The angels reach out, grab Lot, yank him back into safety, and then they blind the whole crowd and keep them from being able to find the door. I mean, can you picture this scene? I mean... On one hand, it probably, it probably would be a little bit funny to watch people tripping and falling over themselves and not being able to find a door. But on another hand, like, this is incredible. This is divine protection, snatching Lot from danger, and then supernaturally shielding him from those who seek to harm him. I mean, there's no logical, earthly, rational reason why a crowd of people can't find a door. This is supernatural. So it's amazing in that sense, but notice also it's horribly, horribly tragic. Because do you see how this scene testifies to Sodom's depth of depravity? Not even being suddenly blinded has diminished their sinful cravings. It didn't get their attention and make them stop. They didn't say, what, what's going on? I can't see. Like, let me get my bearings and stop what I was doing. It says they're still groping for the door. They're still chasing their sin until they wear themselves out. But now, now that the, the men, the angels, have seen firsthand the corruption of the city, they warn Lot, judgment's coming. They tell him to grab anyone he can and bring them out of that place because they are about to destroy it. And that word destroy is the same word we saw back in Genesis 6. When God warned Noah, he was about to destroy the world because of its corruption. And we won't go into all of them, but there's a lot of connections between our passage and Noah and the flood throughout this chapter. Think of a couple. First, we have a thoroughly corrupt society. Genesis 6 told us, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Sodom, it was all the people to the last man that did wickedly. Noah was one righteous man in the midst of a wicked people. So was Lot. Noah was warned to escape the coming judgment along with his family. So was Lot. No one listened to Noah's warning. What about Lot? Well, verse 14, Lot goes to warn his future sons-in-law. But what do they think about his warning? They think he's just joking. It sounds ridiculous to them. Are you kidding me, Lot? This, I mean, is this trying to be funny? Like, this doesn't even make sense. This is absurd. God's going to destroy our whole city? 
So they ignore the warning of coming judgment. And before we move too quickly past that, we just need to stop and say, what about us? When we talk about the fact that one day God will judge the world, do you take that warning seriously? Does it seem to just be jesting, joking, something like, yeah, I mean, I know it's what we say. But when the Bible warns us that there is eternal life for those who are righteous by faith, but eternal punishment for those who are unrighteous, do you believe that? And does the reality of that judgment change you? Tragically, it didn't for Lot's sons. They ignore the warning, and it ends up costing them their lives. So in verses 1 to 14, we've seen the warning of judgment. In the next section, we see that when this judgment comes, the good news is that there is a rescue of the righteous. Down in verse 15, the angels urge Lot to get him and his family out of the city so they're not swept away. Now, after everything we've seen at this point, you'd think, not going to take much convincing for Lot to leave and get out, right? Wrong. What happens in verse 16? Lot lingers. Even with judgment coming, even after the wickedness of the city has almost destroyed him, he's still hesitant to leave. It's still hard for him to let go and abandon Sodom altogether. But do you see what happens next? The angels seize him and his family by the hand and drag them out of the city. And why do they do it? It says it was the Lord being merciful to him. This is incredible, friends. Do you see the amazing mercy of God here? That even when Lot lingers in Sodom, even when he hesitates to leave his sin completely behind, even when he drags his feet in running towards salvation, God doesn't just leave him or abandon him. God rescues him. When Lot wavers, God's mercy grabs him by the hand and drags him to safety. God's showing that his mercy is stronger than Lot's weak faith. But his mercy doesn't even end there. After Lot's been rescued out of the city, the angels tell him, escape to the hills. But rather than just thankfully say, okay, and run with all he's got, Lot says, let's, let's negotiate. In verse 19, he acknowledges that he has found favor or grace, same word that Noah found. He says, yeah, I found favor. And yes, I've been shown great kindness in being saved. But he doesn't want to flee to the hills. So he asks to flee to a nearby city. We're not totally sure why. Maybe he can't have his Sodom, but perhaps he could still have some of the culture that he'd grown to love. He points out twice, you see that twice in that little sentence, how small it is. He says, is it not just a little one? He's making the case to the angels that it wouldn't be so bad to spare this other wicked city because, I mean, it's not that big. There's not a whole lot of wickedness that you're going to leave. It's just a little one. Even after he's been rescued by grace, Lot is still grasping for a little Sodom. Just a little. Can't we be this way with our sin? Even after Jesus has rescued us by grace from our sin, don't we at times still cling to it with all we have rather than flee from it completely? 
Don't we rationalize our sin that we hold on to saying, well, isn't it, isn't it just a little one? And yet, don't miss this. In spite of all his lingering and hesitating and faltering, God rescues Lot. Why? Because he was being merciful to him. This passage is meant to make it unmistakably clear that there is no other reason Lot is saved. Lot does nothing but mess up over and over and over again, and yet God will not let him go. God warns, he pleads, and when necessary, he drags Lot to salvation. Lot does nothing in this passage to deserve being saved. We're meant to see there is no other basis for Lot being rescued than the grace and mercy of God. And so it is for us. So take heart, struggling Christian. Your rescue is not based on how well you follow your Savior, but on the mercy and grace of your Savior. He will do whatever it takes to bring you and I out of our sin and get us safely home. Even if it means grabbing us by the hand and dragging us when we're reluctant to leave. He will get us to safety. And his mercy is the only basis of our salvation. Friends, Jesus has done all that is needed to save sinners like you and me. That is why he could say it is finished. Because on that cross he paid for all our wickedness and all our lingering. His hands were nailed to the tree for all the times our hands remained grasped tightly around the sin we refused to let go of. He came to our wicked Sodom as the one righteous man. And instead of being the one to get out, he was the one who stayed so that he could take the wrath of God that was coming and we could get out. So what do we see here in verses 15 to 22? We see Lot, a messy bumbling sinner who is righteous only by faith, rescued by God, not because he deserved it, but because God is merciful. And that rescue is even more amazing because of what comes next. In verses 23 to 29, judgment falls on Sodom, and we see the destruction of the ungodly. I want to point out just three quick things about this judgment. The first thing we see about this judgment God did it. God did it. This wasn't a fluke natural disaster. Look at verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. We are not left wondering, where did this fire and brimstone come from? What natural phenomenon? Was it a volcano? Was it a, a rupture in the earth? What, what might have been going on? The point is, God did it. This was unmistakably an act of his judgment. Second, it was total. It was total. Verse 25, he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The point is there was nothing left. Nothing was missed or overlooked or escaped God's comprehensive and total judgment. So God did it. It was total. And third, it was sudden. Jesus talks about this in Luke 17. Listen to what Jesus says there. 
He says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. In other words, Jesus is saying, people woke up that day and went about their normal life. They got dressed, they had breakfast, they headed out for work, somebody ran to the store, they made a play date for their kids later, they were figuring out what they were going to eat for dinner that night, not knowing that today was the day of judgment. And it's meant to be a warning. That's why Jesus brings it up. He's saying God will bring judgment. It will be total. And it will be sudden. Are you ready? And as we consider that, did you catch the last thing Jesus said there in Luke 17? Remember Lot's wife. Why did he say that? Because she looked back and became a pillar of salt. Now, this look, this look was more than a glance. This wasn't just a peek over the shoulder. This was a turning back to Sodom. This was a sadness to leave the world of sin behind her. She was too attached to that world. She identified with that city. That's, that's where my heart is. I, I can't leave my heart back there. And because she was so identified with that city, she suffered the judgment of that city. So Jesus says, remember her. Don't be like her. You cannot have your sin and a Savior both. Then in verse 27 to 29, the camera pans away from the city. And there we see Abraham standing where he'd been before the Lord less than 24 hours earlier. And as he looks out, all Abraham can see is smoke rising from a scene of complete and utter destruction. Imagine what was going through Abraham's mind as he looks out on this. He didn't know that Lot had been rescued. He sees the destruction, but he doesn't know that his prayers have been answered. And yet, verse 29 tells us that's exactly what happened. It said God remembered Abraham. He answered his prayers, and that's why Lot was rescued. God's mercy to Lot was tied to the intercession of another. And yet, Abraham didn't know that. In fact, we don't know from Scripture if Abraham ever found out. And as I pondered that this week, friends, isn't this such a good reminder for us as we consider our own prayers that look from everything we can see as though they've gone unanswered? What might God have done or what might God be doing that you have no idea about? 
Abraham poured out his heart. He heard God's promise and he, he asked him, he begged him. He, he, he wouldn't let him go until he said, no, I won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And yet all he can see is destruction. But we know that's not all there was. So what are the prayers that you've been praying where everything you can see says this? What might God be doing that you just can't see? All right. So Abraham's prayer was answered. Lot made it out. Happily ever after, right? Well, verse 30 to 38 shows us not so fast. See, the problem was that Lot and his daughters may have been out of Sodom, but Sodom wasn't out of them. Lot, still being driven by fear, ends up abandoning the little town that he negotiated for He's afraid to go there now, so instead he does end up fleeing to the caves in the mountains. Now, hillside caves were where they made tombs or where refugees were forced to live. So see how far Lot has fallen from having the good land, the prime choice, and having so much property that he had to separate from Abraham to now he's living a death-like existence as a refugee in a cave. And we see some more connections with Noah here, right? We've already seen how the stories have parallels. How God rescues the righteous from cataclysmic judgment against a wicked society. But what happens after that for Noah? He ends up drunk and naked, being sinned against by his children. Well, guess what happens to Lot? He ends up drunk, naked, being sinned against by his daughters. So what are we to make of this? What do we do with this last scene? I mean, this one doesn't make it into the children's story Bibles. So what do we do with it? Well, we're supposed to see that the end of Sodom wasn't the end of sin. That just like when Noah got off the ark, sin got off with him, so too when Lot made it out of Sodom, sin came with him. The judgment that fell there was only a pointer to a greater judgment that would be needed to fully eliminate sin. And the rescue of Lot was only a pointer to a greater rescue that would be needed to save from that judgment. The story, friends, is meant to be both a warning and a promise to us. Listen again to that passage from 2 Peter and and listen to see what it's saying we're supposed to learn from Genesis 19. Peter writes, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So if those are true, if he's shown what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, those two ifs, this is how you read your Bible. You got if, if, there's got to be a then. Here it comes. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's what we're supposed to see. We look and we see fire and brimstone on those who are ungodly. And we see mercy and grace to those who are righteous by faith. Sodom shows us that judgment is coming, that God will destroy the ungodly and he will rescue the righteous. 
And that is meant to have an effect on us. What effect? It's meant to encourage us who are righteous by faith to flee sin. Don't linger. Flee sin and live lives of holiness. Because Peter went on in that same letter. He wasn't done talking about fire and judgment. Here's what Peter says the next chapter. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, here's the point. We're meant to hear the warning. Judgment is coming. The ungodly will be destroyed in fire and brimstone. But rejoice because God will rescue the righteous and by his mercy and grace will grab our hands and bring us home to a new earth where sin is fully and finally no more and righteousness dwells instead. So let us take heart as we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have given us this picture of judgment. That we are not those who, who should be caught unawares or caught by surprise when it comes. You've showed us that there is a judgment that is real and approaching. And you've showed us that it is against the unrighteousness of men who by our ungodliness suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God, each of us does that every day and we, we find ourselves shamefully citizens of Sodom, that we would be right there with them. Were it not for your grace and your mercy, God, by faith, you've made us righteous. And then you've sent your son, you sent one into this wicked city to pull us out. Even when we drag our feet and are so reluctant to leave the cheap and fleeting pleasures of sin because we can't see the greater pleasures that you offer us, God, you grab us and you pull us by mercy to safety, saying, no, no, I will not let you go. I will bring you home so God, thank you for being merciful in that way. And now we pray that we would heed these warnings. God, that as Peter wrote, this judgment would have an effect on us. That it would make us people who live lives of holiness and godliness. Would you take out all the sin that still dwells within us? Would you purge us of the things that we still grasp so tightly? And God, help us to see that the pleasures you offer are better by far. We need your help because we are weak and needy. And so we come to you who are ready to save. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.